Hello all from all of us at From the Front Row. My name is Steve Lansagne, and if this is your first time listening to us, welcome. We're a student-led podcast that explores major issues across the field of public health. I'm tremendously excited today to introduce our two guests. First off, I'd like to introduce our College of Public Health alumnus, Dr. Anshul Dixit. He is a 2008 grad of the MPH and MHA programs. Currently, he serves as a medical director for a large commercial insurer on the West Coast. He will be joining us today in his personal capacity. And the views expressed on this podcast are his and ours alone and not those of our employers. Second, I'd like to introduce Dr. Brian Kasky, who is an associate professor in our Department of Health Management and Policy. Dr. Kasky earned his master's degree at Washington University in St. Louis, completed his doctoral training at the University of Southern California, Leonard Davis School of Gerontology, and participated in a postdoctoral fellowship in health services research and policy at the University of California. His primary interests concern the intersection between public policies and older persons. Welcome to the both of you. Thank, Thank you for having us. Let's start off by examining some of the prominent workforce issues among older adults uh, that have been accelerated by the pandemic. For Dr. Kasky, the focus of the recent public policy and aging report uh, centers around age 50 plus employees navigating the changing workforce landscape. If you can briefly comment on some of the shifts that we're seeing and how employers can best address the challenges and opportunities presented by an aging workforce. First off, Steve, thanks for having me and I'm sure this is, this is really gonna be fun today. I appreciate the opportunity. And in regard to our aging population, uh, the first point is um, there's more. Uh, there's more uh, persons over the age of 50 in the United States than at any point in history. In fact, there are going to be more older persons uh, in our country by 2030 than there are going to be children and people under the age of 18. So that sort of huge trend is in front of us. And what we're concerned about is how few employers have actually acknowledged uh, how that will really transform the workplace. Employers are, are getting up to speed on, on handling issues concerning entry of women into the workforce, which really started uh, to happen in mass in the 1980s. And they're also developing great programs to acknowledge the diversity of the workforce, but those efforts seem to not be considering those who are over the age of 50. And that's what our focus is on. These folks, you know, as an employer goes, need to be thought about in terms of not only conferring uh, opportunities to continue working. Most persons who are at older than age 50 are actually pretty healthy and productive, and you shouldn't just think they're going to retire. But at the same time, uh, these individuals also do incur more health-related issues. So workplace wellness programs, health insurance, and other such benefits become even more important for these individuals. And Anshul, with regards to that, talking about transformation of workplace and age diversity concerns, with the substantial rates of unemployment across the country, we know that older adults face a tremendous burden of potential loss of health insurance benefits, especially now with the pandemic in full swing. What are some areas of concern here and are there efforts to support these patient populations? So first off, Steve, uh, let me say what a delight it is uh, to be on, on your show. I've been a longtime listener and uh, as I was uh, saying to my family, I'm an innovator at backbencher, so uh, it's, it's great to be able to make it to the front row 
and uh, you know i can say with conviction now that i've finally arrived after after 12 years of grad school so thank you for having me again one of the lessons uh, we learned early on in the pandemic is that viruses do not respect demographic and territorial boundaries and the pandemic has uh, exposed gaps in our uh, safety net and the argument in favor of strong public health and universal coverage has never been more persuasive now if we look at our workforce more than 70% of the workforce cannot telework two and three adults between the ages of 55 and 64 cannot telework and this proportion is even higher for individuals ages 65 and older where three out of four individuals cannot telecommute so the gap is stark and it's even starker for ethnic minorities where the numbers are far lower for for black and hispanic populations so the the need is certainly there to support these populations in the pursuit of greater productivity even as they begin to struggle with health concerns as dr kaski alluded to now the cares act did set aside about 2.2 billion dollars for older workers to stay at home and to be able to collect unemployment insurance benefits and hopefully some of that will 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 continue in the coming months in the early stages we saw the health insurance industry wave cost share for for covid testing and that is set to continue as long as the public health emergency is in effect another effect was certainly ha- having that conversation around paid sick days broader conversation around unemployment insurance so these are some of the some of the opportunities that we have to support older adults as uh, as they continue to be uh, vibrant productive members of our, of our communities next i mean the building on the protections in the aca is absolutely vital the affordable care act does face a lot of legal challenges uh, the fate of these challenges will dictate efforts that support non working older adults uh, that are nearing retirement and finally with the with, with the new administration uh, in in january there are bound to be larger conversations around uh, vulnerable populations uh, providing coverage to them and uh, these issues are likely to be revisited just to add to that anshul is is another wrinkle in all this is that not only are are persons over 50 being displaced that is they're they're part of layoffs and other challenges that are going along with the continued spread of covid but these are the folks who are also primary caretakers of those other older adults their parents or their their siblings who actually are in need of support they have contracted covid or another healthcare crisis during this time and now they're split they're they're gone from working uh, full time to now uh, in a caregiving role and so another challenge here is for employers to consider how can they adjust to this sort of new reality where it's not just younger moms in the workplace who are going to be uh tied to raising uh, younger children and and we need to develop strategies and effective responses for that but now we need to think about these uh aging workforce challenges that are are fairly unique now absolutely and that's the double whammy that that older adults are facing in terms of care caregiving responsibilities and uh, certainly they are in that vulnerable population where uh, they are at increased risk of coming down with uh, with with the virus and they do have comorbid illnesses so certainly point well taken and employers do have an obligation to support whatever arrangements are feasible in terms of uh, retraining providing teleworking opportunities and other uh, sort of engagements so that these older adults continue to be productive uh, members of the workforce 
Within those telework arrangements that you both are talking about too, you know, we, one of the things we've seen come out of the pandemic really is the explosion of telehealth, where the folks have been able to telework from home, interact with their uh, patients as necessary, and really decrease the spread of COVID-19 while ensuring a continuum of care. And we're also faced with a really big workforce shortage upcoming of older clinicians. And so we're starting to see these kind of two areas intersect where we're faced with a potential loss of medical knowledge and a potential loss of um, really needed care, especially in rural communities where there's a lot of trouble recruiting providers to those areas. And the uptake of telehealth has really posed a lot of questions about how are we going to reimagine the older worker uh, force as well as how do we deliver high quality primary care and mental health care going forward throughout the pandemic. When we're considering telehealth or other telework opportunities as a bridge, what opportunities or challenges do you both see for training or retraining older adults for virtual work environments? I couldn't be more excited about the opportunity that the pandemic has presented uh, to reimagine high quality primary care. I, I began my clinical career as a small town physician in, in central Iowa. Uh, certainly problems for access was, off, access was certainly there. And as someone said recently, there are years when nothing happens and there are years when decades happen. And we have seen a lot of progress in the past few months where uh, the technology platforms have matured. Consumers and providers are more comfortable. They've overcome their initial hesitation around technology. The reimbursement models have caught up and people are beginning to see the value of telehealth for non-acute uh, services. Certainly telehealth allowed insurers to support primary care practices when their volumes were down early on in the pandemic. And uh, as consumers get more and more savvy, they will begin to realize what the opportunities and the limitations of, of uh, telehealth really are. Now, this, these are new workflows for everybody, for clinicians, for staff, uh, for, for, for patients. It does allow, allow a greater degree of automation that eventually will help the system harness more efficiencies, like gathering pre-visit information, like understanding which sort of visits are really geared towards telehealth and which sort of visits are more geared towards in-person interactions. So certainly there's an, this opportunity to think more deeply about what constitutes a high quality telehealth visit. Now the NCQ is looking at putting together some sort of guidance and metrics around what a high quality telehealth visit looks like. Because we have seen HEDIS rates drop in the past few months and certainly that's a concern. And maybe there's a way to, to incorporate some of those metrics in, in, in our, our telehealth visits in, in these unprecedented times. How do we begin to better integrate telehealth visits with ancillary services? For instance, labs, preventative care, immunizations, uh, vaccine delivery, those sort of services. How do we think about integrating telehealth into social determinants of health? Now that providers have a glimpse into the home environment, they are better able to identify social determinants that might be easily addressed with, uh, with interventions. And how do we provide a more of team-based approach to care? How do we bring in social workers? How do we bring in our mid-level practitioners into this workforce shortage that has been plaguing different communities around the country? How do we begin to think of creative approaches that utilize the skill set of these very diverse teams in providing better care to the patient. The other question I had was whether these new reimbursement structures that we have seen in the past few months, the zero cost share, the regulatory dismantling, will those be in place after the public health emergency ends? 
will we be able to keep disparities from worsening knowing fully well that there are marginalized communities that do not have access to uh, technology platforms that may not be as health literate or has uh, as savvy in terms of using these capabilities and to our providers who sometimes struggle with burnout will these visits be as gratifying as in person visits will patients and providers value the connection uh, that brick and mortar facilities provide will they each realize the value of these services while also recognizing when an in person visit might be more uh, might be of greater value yeah just to add to that great quote <laughs> the decades can pass by in just a year you know up until now we've been looking into telehealth for decades um actually it started in the mid 90s and it's not like it can't happen it's been uh, available in so many other industries hello education uh we've completely transformed not only secondary education but here the higher education realm is, is going into a virtual format so this there's really very little reason behind the notion that you can at least do follow up visits check in calls all these sorts of supplemental uh, supportive activities that could be construed as, as contributing to the social determinants of health. You know, the payment is in there. It's always been in there. It's called cost savings. Uh, when you use telehealth, you have people who come back to the hospital for readmissions after discharge, far less than those who don't use it. You have people who maintain their medication regimens much better. The notion that we have to pay more uh, for telehealth is, is just boggling to think when, in fact, it's really an opportunity for health systems to become more cost effective. And the other thing about it is we do face this, as, as one of our candidates have referred to, sort of a K economy happening or an evolution in front of us. There are going to be a lot of health systems and the patients therein that are going to easily adapt to this. They already know how to connect with their patients electronically. They know how to transfer documents and, and medical records safely. And they know how to, to engage people effectively. And if you will, dose out in-person visits with sort of the routine checkups that telehealth really do capitalize on. But there's a large segment of the American population, especially in rural communities, that simply does not have access to any of this. You know, though they, they don't have broadband, they don't have the technology uh, available to them to participate in this. And this is where it's a really interesting conversation to have with healthcare administrators and public health officials is, what are you waiting for? Why aren't you in these communities building the infrastructure in collaboration with public health officials in collaboration with telecom companies. You know, we came together 50 years ago to build hospitals and communities. There was a huge infrastructure investment act that essentially made all these hospitals uh, free uh, to the people who now occupy them. Why is there not the same sort of effort being led by hospital administrators and public health officials to reach out to the people in their community and help set them up? Uh, with this broadband capability and the technology needed to use this stuff. They are paid for it. Uh, they have capital reserves. There's no reason why we can't do this. And, and I actually hope that this pandemic leads to that sort of consideration that, that healthcare systems really, you know, 
they're community-based systems. They're not Wall Street-based. They need to participate more in developing their community, uh, at a, especially at a time like this. I'm so glad you brought up the question of broadband. We have seen that in our, uh, in our schools and how broadband access or lack thereof has really widened the disparities between, uh, between communities. Right, no, just it harkens back to a day when, when we as a public decided that investing in the human capital of the citizens was important. And, and how did we do that? We built highways, we built roads, we built hospitals, we built schools, we used tax revenues to do that. 60 years later, it's as if, you know, it's some mystery why this is not being built and why it's not reaching these communities. And, and folks, it's, it's no mystery. It's just this sort of lack of, of community-based interest that we see uh, from a number of healthcare systems and public health officials. They need to come together and work this out. They have the most, I mean, in any community, especially here across the Midwest, the single largest organization is the healthcare organization. They need to lead in this area. Steve, you probably have uh, um, <laughs> some some thought Other about questions. No, I think I think these are fantastic conversations because you do have this concern, and one idea I keep on coming back to is the idea of you can't have telehealth without this broadband infrastructure. You you need a pipeline for this until we ramp up with either audio only, which is really still in its infancy in terms of either regulatory or research efforts, there needs to be this investment. So is the investment going to be in advancing broadband initiatives? Is it going to be in retraining or rehiring your workforce who is getting ready to retire and should be working more in this virtual area? So they have kind of a bridge job while we try and recruit and retain younger workers. How, how does this work? In, in both of your guys' views, how does this work out so we can really meet the needs of our community? Because we're really facing a lot of issues, especially in the Midwest with mental health practitioner access. What can we do beyond building out these resources? It really seems like that's where it needs to start. Yeah, I would agree. And, and we just did a travel across the United States. My family and I got on Highway 66 and then got off and, and took the Santa Fe Trail. And it's just amazing to see the communities as you go through Missouri, Kansas, New Mexico, that just seem to be a decade or two behind in the sense that you go into those communities and while I can still get my phone, my cell access, their healthcare systems don't have that same sort of connectivity. It's there. They could do it if they wanted to. They just haven't marshaled up the, the wherewithal. You know, somewhere in these boards, they're deciding it's more important to build another surgical theater, expand their emergency department, rather than use those capital funds to, to invest in connecting with their community in a modern way. And the more we can talk about this, I think the more you're going to see, at least in some places, say, yeah, this is a good thing. And Steve, to your point, hello, talk about opportunities for employment. Think about it. Airlines, banking industry, they've all gone virtual. Healthcare needs to get into the 21st century in this regard. And, and there's a, a bunch of folks who would benefit not only from the receiving end as patients, but also as the opportunities for employment. As you alluded to in your brief, uh, Steve, with uh, impact, I believe the FCC is uh, looking at some approaches to broadband access in our communities. 
Yeah, it, you know, the, we're seeing a revitalization in this era. And again, it's the idea of the pandemic really is is moving us forward. It's it's really exposing these disparities that we're seeing. And we are, I think, going to see federal investment and we'll also see private investment in both of these areas of where is this going with broadband access? It, the, the common phrase that I, everyone keeps saying is the genie is out of the bottle with telehealth, even though, as Dr. Kasky said, you know, it's been around since the 90s, but we're coming around to it. We're seeing this is where we'll need to make the big push in investment. And so I think ultimately it will be a, it'll be a community led initiative. Like Dr. Kasky is saying, we, we need folks from the, you know, all sides of the aisle coming together and saying, this is a priority for us. We really need to invest in our communities because they won't get healthcare either way, you know, or it'll be too far away as it's always been, or there'll be other things that crop up. And, and we're really at that point of, we can secure access for folks, you know, the, the payment side of things, we're still figuring that out, but access and opportunities, we're able to zoom and Skype across the country, you know, there, we can build this stuff out for folks. We just need to have the wherewithal and the focus from policy champions. And, and actually, I just add to that, and is this really comes down to hospital and health system leadership. The public wants this, patients want it. Where the, the hurdle is, is internal to a health system or a hospital where there's a small number of folks who, you know, see these things as threats. It's like, wait a minute, I don't want to invest in this because I'm a surgeon and I don't really use telehealth. And I need more surgical devices and machines and nurses. And, and, you know, that's where we need to put our resources because that's where we make our margins and things like that. There is that argument or, or those voices in these meetings. And those voices need to be balanced against everything Anshul said. You know, telehealth really isn't about having a back surgery. It doesn't help you, you know, replace a, a spine, put in a spinal implant. But where it helps is on the discharge side. When that person gets home and they don't know how to take care of themselves and they just need a video from a nurse to show them how to change their, you know, their dressing, something like that. And so until the, the bigger voices or more dominant voices come around and see the value and how it isn't a threat to them, I think we're going to be stuck on this for a while. Talking about that component of where telehealth can be geared towards with, especially with discharge and everything along those lines. How do we ensure that this deployment matches the needs of older populations? Is it an idea of a well-designed user interface? Is this patient tutorials to guide folks through outreach campaigns? How does this look? Because as you said, until the voices in the room start talking about this, this mostly probably will be a patient-led effort where it will be something to the effect of, I saw this was an opportunity. I'd really like to pursue it what do you mean X hospital doesn't offer it? How do we think that this area dices out in the future? So Steve, consumers have had the past eight months to experiment with these technologies, see what works, see what doesn't work. And given that the comparable technologies are so easy to use, the consumer expectations are already sky high in terms of what telehealth can do for them. Just in the past eight months, we have seen an evolution in how consumers are using these services. Initially, there was this big spike, as you saw, where everybody flooded into telehealth and then gradual flattening of that curve in term, when, they, when they realized uh, that there are certain services that are best accessed in person. So the baby boomer cohort that we had today in 2020 is a lot more tech savvy than the cohort of 2010 when the first of the boomers turned 65. 
So we are already seeing those encouraging signs in that being an older adult does not equate with being not tech savvy. And you'll see this transition reflected in the upcoming annual enrollment period. Uh, there will be M- Medicare Advantage plans that will compete on virtual health plans, $0 cost pay for virtual visits. And even some of the advertising of their uh, the, these plans, these Medicare Advantage plans will, will change. Now, a few years ago, we used to see ads for MA plans that featured horses scampering on the beach or vineyards in all their glory. Now we are more likely to see a couple holding an iPad and presumably engaging in a telehealth visit. So that evolution in consumers becoming more tech savvy and especially older consumers is being reflected in plan offerings and outreach and even their their branding and advertising. And just to add to that, this is already happening. Older adults are using Fitbits. They're getting health watches. They're getting online to fill out their Medicare forms. They're getting online to Zoom and chat with their kids. The only place where it's not happening is healthcare. They're on lines with their banks. They're on lines with their lawyers. Yet healthcare magically, mysteriously can't make this happen. I think two things need to happen is, is patients need to continue to demand this. You know, walk into your doctor's office and say, uh, why do I need to come back in two weeks after surgery to have you check on my colostomy bag? Why do I need to sit in the waiting room for two hours so you can finally get to me spend five minutes looking at it and say I'm okay, and then I can go back home. That represents a five-hour chunk out of my day when all you really needed to do is just schedule a time that an email sends me in the morning that says, Dr. Jones will be able to see you at 2.15. And then I flip on a switch, and then they can do a visual and audio check-in on me. I mean, the fact that consumers aren't demanding this is just mind-boggling. So that's step one. Second thing is more and more homes that are being built for seniors are actually incorporating IT structure into the home itself. So another sort of, how should we say, lazy man dismissal of of why they're not doing this is people say, well, we don't have the infrastructure in person's homes in place. That's not true anymore. Homes are being built with Wi-Fi capabilities, connectivity. We're just waiting for the plugs to come from the health system. That's where it is right now. So how do you get the health system to change? You know, patient education is routine. They're supposed to spend time with you when a mission in the hospital talking to you about your end of life choices. You know, that gets blown off. They're also supposed to talk to you about your discharge plans. You know, who's going to take care of you when you leave the hospital? That gets blown off. Well, not surprisingly, they're also blowing off this opportunity to say to their patients, hey, do you have connectivity issues? What can we do about this? So I think, again, back to the health systems, they just have to assume more responsibility other than bringing people in for a treatment and then sending them back home. It's not hard. They're community organizations. They should start acting like they're supporting the community. You hit on a really good point there of, and, and something I've mentioned a couple of times as well is the idea of broadband access really becoming a social determinant of health. We're seeing this tremendously happening now with the pandemic, with access to telehealth or other initiatives. And it needs to be something that hospitals and health systems are accounting for and asking. It can be simple to add it onto one of the checklists for intake and saying, is this going to be an issue for you when you're finished up here? With the delivery of the checklist or something to this effect, 
Anshul, how do you think this could be incorporated from a health insurer perspective? You know, when we're thinking about the evolution of telehealth and pushing this further down the way, how do we account for connectivity as an issue? Certainly there are challenges to connectivity, as both of you mentioned. Some of them may be relating to the infrastructure and others, of course, relating to or to the culture uh, in healthcare and how much emphasis we place on connectivity as, as a social determinant of health. We have seen in education and we are seeing in healthcare that lack of connectivity, lack of access to social interactions can have tremendously devastating impact on, on outcomes, especially seniors when uh, such isolation can worsen their sense of isolation can lead to a spike in mental health concerns, anxiety, depression, and of course, not being able to see their loved ones. So I, I totally agree with Dr. Kasky that it, it is past time to pull everybody together, to have all our hands on deck in terms of ensuring that broadband access is available to the extremes of our population. And within that idea of connectivity, especially with the senior population, one of the big things that we've seen recently with telehealth was a big fraud insurance scheme. When we're looking at this surge of the pandemic, it's redefined telehealth. We can clearly see that even though you can have connectivity, you can have people kind of coming to the table with these ideas, program integrity approaches are critical. They do need to be refined. And from an insurer perspective, Anshul, where do you see health systems or insurers headed with response to fraud, waste, and abuse occurrences with telehealth as it becomes more commonplace and demanded by the consumer? As you allude to, Steve, uh, there's a potential for abuse, potential for bad actors to jump into the fray. Now, fraud, waste, and abuse has a real impact in terms of cost of care and in terms of uh, the premiums that uh, members and employers uh, pay for their health care. Not only that, it does impact healthcare of communities. Not too long ago, there was online opioid pill mills that were freely prescribing uh, these controlled substances uh, to individuals, uh, resulting in, in poor outcomes uh, in, our, in our communities. So there's, there's, of course, the cost side of it, but there's also a quality um, side of it as well. The good news is that advanced analytics tools that identify fraud, waste, and abuse are equally applicable to telehealth services. In that respect, you can expect to see a heightened focus on quality and value of telehealth services as technology matures, as consumers and providers become more savvy about using it. And as uh, uh, these visits, the sheer volume of these visits begin to pop up on uh, these uh, radar screens, these analytics tools that are used to identify from based on abuse. It brings me to another point in that we will need robust patient identification as patients begin to access these services. And there are technologies available that allow a robust degree of patient identification during telehealth encounters. And hopefully the technology will move towards that standard so that both the provider and the member are sure of, of their identities and where they're accessing these, uh, these services from. I would suspect the fraud most likely occurs in fee-for-service Medicare arrangements, obviously. And, and this is a function, again, I, I, I may be overplaying this particular point, but again, it gets back to health administration. 
And if health administrators uh, simply farm out these functions to third parties, and these third parties can invoice for services either separately to Medicare because they were approved by the medically qualified physician says, yes, I approve of this. That physician really has no stake in whether or not the company bills fraudulent. Just like they have no stake in, in prescribe, monitoring prescribing practices. So what do you do here? Well, first off, you, you look at where managed care operations are because they see this as a cost savings. So if they are in charge of their own aggregate budget, they're probably gonna be a little bit more circumspect about A, the development and deployment of telemedicine, and then B, they're gonna watch for excessive or inappropriate use. And this is, again, this is not hard to figure out. The fraud occurs when leadership takes these positions that they're essentially are agnostic from the practice of third parties that come in and bill excessively for this stuff. How you stop that? Again, you can either go to a capitate arrangements or as Anshul says, you just need to ratchet up um, the oversight of these billables, i.e. track patient IDs and, and whatnot. But uh, Medicare fraud is a longstanding issue and, and this is just a new wrinkle. And again, it, it largely comes down to, to this notion of fee for service and the lack of administrative oversight. When we're talking about the issues we've discussed today, whether it's telehealth or it's older adults in the workforce, within your respective fields, what do you think is the most pressing situation that you want to handle with your career that the general public should be aware of? Personally, from my standpoint, it is improving value for members and employers. As patients transition from their traditional role of claims processors to becoming more health-centric, not healthcare-centric, but health-centric, consumer-centric organizations, they will get there by exploring new partnerships, by continuing to invest in social terms of health, and by testing pilot programs in, in the populations that uh, we just talked about, Medicare Advantage and the Medicaid populations, uh, with the goals of enabling an overall superior member experience and meeting those members where, uh, where they are, uh, where their, their capabilities are, and ensuring that uh, we do not gloss over the needs of underserved communities that are not as health literate and health savvy. So I would say my focus in the next few years will be on affordability. I'll add to that, uh, maybe a little higher level point of view is one, is how we as a society need to embrace this, this whole phenomenon called population aging. Our generation and folks right now who are 20 years old have been given an extra 30 years of life. Since 1950, the longevity of any individual born has far surpassed that in any point in history. So most of us, right, when we designed social security and Medicare, and all this healthcare, the notion was people would maybe make it to 70 or 75. If you're born today, you can expect to live to see 100. How are we going to make sure that those last 25 years of life are healthy and exciting and engaging? Because they can be. I've seen it. There are a number of older per Americans out there who, you know, you'll see them on the ski slopes and they're 85 years old. You'll see them at lectures and they're asking questions. There's, there's this stereotype that aging is nothing but some sort of inevitable decline. It's just not true. 
So with that in mind, how can we in healthcare, which is the primary variable that shapes the aging trajectory, how can we assure that we're facilitating successful aging for our, our population of aging Americans? You know, the ones who made America great because they served in World War II. Let's start there. They're the ones who defended us. What are we doing for them? Other than, you know, what we're currently doing. That's the question I put out there. And so my goal is to say, yeah, we need to move away from just seeing them as revenue opportunities, right? We need to stop thinking of them as, oh, okay, well, they have insurance coverage. Let's try to give them all these medical procedures we can. I mean, many hospitals across the country rely primarily on Medicare patients for revenue stream. That's just odd to me that they see it as such. Why aren't they thinking about these people as resources in their community? Why aren't they doing more to, to, to support them, to get engaged in, let's say, uh, community partnerships with schools, to do tutoring for the kids in their areas that might need some help with reading because both of their parents are working. That's help. That's public help. Why aren't they engaging more seniors in nutrition service programs to help people who, when they come home from the hospital, might need a little help? Why aren't we thinking about this? Well, my goal is, is I pretty much recognize that it's, it's not the people who are senior to me that are going to change the system, right? When you meet folks my age, we're like, well, I'm only five years away from retirement. You know, I don't want to take on this kind of battle. I'm just going to ride out the system as it is. You know, that's your problem, Steve. Well, that's my goal is to give you all who follow us enough of an internal drive to basically say, we need to transform the system because I'm going to, me, Steve, and my kids are going to be around a lot longer. And the way the system's currently designed, if we look at the numbers, it's going to be bankrupt in a few years. And then what we're going to see is, again, this K, where a large number of Americans who are already healthy and well-educated and have access to retirement pensions and supplemental Medicare, they're going to be fine. It's all the others. And it's more than half of the current population of aging Americans that simply just don't have the same access and opportunities that the other aging Americans do. And it's not like they're, they did it because they were lazy or they didn't work hard or they didn't serve America or believe in our values. It's, it's just how it works. There's a diversity in our aging population and we need to reconcile that. So my goal is, is to get people thinking more comprehensively about this. You know, it's great that we focus on, you know, the importance of elective surgical procedures, but you know what? I'm not really all that interested in that relative to making sure that older adults get discharged back to their home and they know who their caregiver is and they're connected with their providers and they don't have to get out of bed and drive in for a follow-up appointment. That's my goal. We've talked in the past, Dr. Kasky, about adequate funding for geriatrics and gerontology, graduate medical education, mm -hmm. and uh, certainly the resources and the manpower to care for an aging society. Do you see any movement in terms of the system beginning to support 
the holistic care of older adults that geriatrics and gerontology provide? I think you see it in small doses. I think you see it in uh, certain healthcare systems that have moved into a fully capitated arrangement where they take on the risk because those systems get how much opportunity, how much cost there are for them to save by moving into this arena. The, the, the amount of excess spending in, in many healthcare systems, especially in a fee-for-service world, gosh, if you gave me an opportunity to, to reduce costs by 20% and improve outcomes at the same time, I'm doing that. If I'm a billion-dollar system, that's $200 million, right? So I think there are systems that are starting to figure that out. Um, I also think there are communities of older adults that are starting to figure that out. When I worked out East, there was a series of retirement communities. The guy had a business plan where they essentially figured out if they could build a community that had about four or 5,000 residents, that was a big enough market or a population, if you will, that they could go to their local health system and make demands and say, look, we're here at, at Sunny Oak Village. We have 5,000 Medicare beneficiaries. And if you guys start setting up arrangements with our village, like after surgical care, like teleports, we're gonna drive all our patients, I mean, our residents into your health system. So I see that and that's pretty cool. But by and large, um, geriatrics, gerontology still is not a profession a lot of people move into. Um, it's not a profession that people move into because it's, it's a hands-on profession. It's not a procedure-based profession. And as long as you have a for-profit interest in, in healthcare, which has emerged over the last 20 years considerably, um, as long as you have administrators who play this agnostic role of, you know, they have no commitment here to do anything other than make their margin ahead of their mission. I don't know what we're going to do. And, and so I think we really want to address this notion of mission of community hospitals. Why were they founded in the first place? They weren't there to be banks or, or you know, money changers uh, between Medicare and, and providers. But that's what they seem to have become in a lot of places. And I think that's the conversation we want to have. Those are all excellent insights. You know, I've, I've had such a wonderful time today getting to chat with both of you about your respective fields of interest and the intersection of my own. So I really do appreciate getting to take the time out of today to chat with y'all. And I know that Anshul said he had a special question for me as well, too. We'd love to ask. Thank you, Steve. I do have a question for you. Sort of a reverse mentoring, if you will. Uh, you run a very successful podcast and you've had lots of interesting guests over uh, over the past several months. I'm just curious, what does it take to get a podcast like this off the ground? Of course, it takes commitment and all those other things. But how do you get something like this off the ground in case there are some listeners who are toying with the idea and want to venture out into the podcasting world? That's a great question, Angel. Uh, you know, I inherited this podcast um, from someone else who also had inherited the podcast. And so while I'm not the original founder of from the front row. When I look at how our podcast is successful, I think that it is the diversity of ideas that come into it. You know, we just recruited a couple new folks who will be joining on and they've been able to help identify areas that I hadn't considered going into. 
But when someone else says it, you know, I think, oh my gosh, why didn't I think of that? That's such a great idea. And when I look at how our podcast is branching out and, and reaching other folks and, and the accomplishments we've been able to make as a team, I, I really reflect on that as a team effort of, of founding this because as much as I'd like to take credit and say, gosh, I, I pushed this all together and I did everything, it's, it's been founded by other folks and it really has been a, a student-led podcast. And I think that really is one of the, the founding things that I've seen in, in effective podcasts is you've got someone else along for the ride. Uh, it's not just you talking at another person. I really have found that when you have a dialogue of other folks coming on who are part of your team, or who bring those different insights, I think that's really the most effective way that you can lead a podcast because you've got that conversational style of things. It's not just an interview. It's, it's what we've got going on here where it's we can go off on segments or tangents or anything along those lines. And that really, I think, helps engage folks as listeners. Wonderful. You and your colleagues have done an amazing job and I continue to gather lots of good insights. So thank you for doing it. It's been fun during these pandemic months uh, to see how the public health uh, student community is engaging and kudos uh, on all you've done. Just before we sign off, actually, Anshul, I want to give you a shout out, too. I remember um, when Steve, gosh, it was sometime this summer, and I said, you know, we have a lot of alums in our college who aren't in Iowa City anymore, and they're out there in the world doing really cool things. And I came up with a list, and you were definitely at the top of the list. I think for the listeners here, you know, maybe you could spend the last minute or two telling us a little bit more about what you've done, because you have carved out a career in which you are blending these values we've talked about, I've been harping on this notion of community and, and, and Pareto function or however you want to call it, and, and blending that into the actual operations of healthcare. And so to be clear, you know, I think we do a lot of tremendous things here in our college. The, the people who graduate from our college go off and do great things for their organizations and they really do advance patient care. But you're the kind of uh, alum, I think, who's, who's taken that extra step or two and pushed into this sector that I think is, is really critical for us to start considering. So maybe just let the other students who are listening or other professionals know, who's Anshul and, and, and what do you do now? <laughs> and give us that idea how you married public health values with medical care. It started off during my career as a primary care physician back in central Iowa where uh, I realized that there was more, more to health than healthcare itself. And as a result, I got in, intrigued, but drawn to this world of public health and healthcare management. And I still consider myself very much a student more than anything else. I played that student card as long as I could, and I would encourage the listeners to do the same. Go for those inter informational interviews, tap into as many brains and opportunities as you can, make the most of those office hours that you have while you're in school, although those are probably virtual now, and continue to be curious about what's happening in the larger world around you. And what are the social, economic, political, and healthcare issues of the day that affect your work and how you can begin to get engaged, get involved, and delve into insights from others, as, as Steve said. Just start, tap into that brain's trust of uh, the network that you will have built over your journey as a student and during the first steps in the, in the work 
place. And so for me personally, Dr. Kasky, it's been an evolution. It's been a series of learning experiences that, that were arranged over at the College of Public Health and, and subsequently and just continuing to benefit from the uh, wisdom of uh, many others who were fortunate to give me their time. Too many to name, but again, I'm grateful to all of them, yourself included. Steve, any last minute acknowledging points? Thoughts no, the future. You know, I, I think this has been a wonderful conversation about the integration of public health into higher spheres today. I think we've all touched on aspirational but achievable areas, whether it's reforming the approach to healthcare delivery, whether it's uh, reforming the approach of how we think about population aging, and even in the context of the podcast, right? How do you approach listeners and, and engaging populations as a whole? Ultimately, I want to thank both of you for your time today and for these valuable insights into the pertinent issues across the field of public health and to wish you well in the upcoming year and hoping that 2021 goes on smoothly for both of you. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Steve. Thank you for having me. That's it for this week's episode of From the Front Row. Our guests were Dr. Brian Kasky and Dr. Anshul Dixit. This week's episode was hosted, edited, and produced by Steve Lansagne. You can find our team on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud as the University of Iowa College of Public Health. Our podcast is brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your colleagues. You can reach our team at cph-gradambassador at uiowa.edu. Stay safe and keep on keeping on out there.